The following program has words that were once banned in Boston, as they say. No, not Bucky Dent or Manhattan Clam Chowder. Much worse words than that. It's Friday, December 4th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Corey Lewandowski was last in the news for getting COVID. He seems to have shaken it, but the virus is back. Not COVID, Lewandowski himself. So Lewandowski lists himself as the campaign manager for the successful 2016 Donald Trump presidential campaign. And those words in that order are technically true, but in this order, they aren't. Here we go. When Donald Trump successfully won the presidency, Corey Lewandowski was his campaign manager. That is not true because he had been fired beforehand. But he still is very much in Trump's orbit. And now he and David Bossie, who is the next guy up after a desperate news producer begs Lewandowski to be on her show to ride roughshod over the host questions and spew pro-Trump messaging. Those two guys have been named the newest members of the Defense Business Board, which means not a whole hell of a lot. The board makes recommendations on Defense Department, quote, management, business process, and governance from a private sector perspective. It's unclear if the board is even scheduled to meet within the next five weeks. It's quite unlikely that President Biden will keep on the co-authors of the nonfiction book, Let Trump Be Trump. They do get to put it on their resumes, however, and it is historic insofar as it means that Corey Lewandowski is the first American to simultaneously serve on the Defense Review Board and be available to record greetings on Cameo. You don't know Cameo? Cameo bills itself as offering custom videos from thousands of celebs, connecting fans with their favorite celebrities via personalized video shoutouts. You get Kenny G to wish you happy birthday for $250. Debbie Gibson, $299. Chuck Norris, $340. Not afraid to die. Are you? The guy who played the soup Nazi, $80. No soup for you. And for $70? Corey Lewandowski. Who better to shout out that promotion birthday or the dropping of charges by Palm Beach County prosecutors than Corey Lewandowski, now a member of the Defense Business Board? This person paid 70 bucks to hear the Lewandowski greeting. Hey, this is Corey Lewandowski. You know me as President Trump's 2016 campaign manager and his current 2020 senior advisor. Look, Joe, I heard you just got a huge promotion at work. Wait, Joe? So I want to offer a special congratulations. Congratulations, Joe. We're so proud of you and excited for all your future success. I can't confirm, but what if it was Biden staffers who bought this as a goof? That is how I shall interpret it, as Corey Lewandowski concludes by saying, So, Joe, congratulations on your huge promotion at work. I hope you have all the success that you get, and I hope you get super rich. That is why I'm on the Defense Business Board, and also because Burisma Holdings rejected my application. Oh, the swamp has never been so fetid. And now, with that news of presidential office sullying fresh in your mind, let's reflect back as we engage in a remembrance of things Trump. Today, Donald Trump's critiques concerning Chucks. First, there was Chuck Schumer, Listen for the appellation the president bestowed upon the Senate minority leader. She is the worst. No wonder with people like her and crying Chuck Schumer, D.C. has been such a mess for so long. And that includes the previous administration who, and now we know for sure, spied on my campaign. Crying Chuck Schumer. And he used this one for Chuck Todd. It's 1999. I'm on Meet the Press, a show now headed by sleepy eyes Chuck Todd. 
He's a sleeping son of a bitch, I'll tell you. Sleepy-eyed Chuck Todd, weepy-eyed Chuck Schumer. Chuck is obsessed with the ocular activities of Jewish guys named Chuck. The weird thing is, well, the weird thing is that our president is a nasty little eight-year-old. But the other weird thing is that Donald Trump's favorite put-down is little, little Marco, little Bob Corker. Over the years, there was little George Stephanopoulos and little Donnie Deutsch and Mayor little Michael Bloomberg, right? But Chuck Todd is shorter than all those guys. And his eyes aren't sleepy. I don't even know what that means. Does Trump look at Chuck Todd and sense bedroom eyes? Or does that just mean he needs a nap? Either way, as with so many bits of analysis in these trips down memory lane, it is impossible to comprehend and yet important to never forget. This has been Remembrances of Things Trump. On the show today, I should feel about how it's so much easier to be wrong than right when it comes to corona denialism. But first and relatedly, Maria Konnikova is back and she is here to tackle an aspect of the anti-COVID protocol that we have all been told to follow. Yes, masks. Yes, distancing. Yes, outdooredness. But also, keep those convos under 15 minutes. Where did that number come from? What's the scientific backing? Is it real or is it bullshit? Maria Konnikova, up next. Maria Konnikova is a Renaissance woman. She is the author of The Biggest Bluff, which is her uh, New York Times bestselling book and, you know, one of the hundred best books of the last, they said year, but I'm going to, I'm going to assume they meant century. She also comes on our program to play Is That Bullshit, in which she and I bat about scientific claims, claims that are based in empiricism, but how much should they be? And we call this segment, Is That Bullshit? Today, we shall be talking about one of the core recommendations concerning with how to safely avoid coronavirus. Maria Konnikova, thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me, Mike. So what we hear and what we've been hearing for months and months and months about coronavirus is, well, we hear, you know, wash your hands, which is true. We heard stuff about wipe off surfaces, which is not untrue, but is not a major vector of contagion. The biggest advice that I constantly hear about living your life in the world as best you can, but also doing everything you can to avoid the coronavirus is to wear a mask. Then there is be outdoors and there's unilateral agreement, especially with um, air circulation. This has a big impact. I've heard statistics up to you're 20 times more likely to acquire the coronavirus with indoor conversation. But then the third part of it, I haven't heard subjected to scrutiny at all. And that is, and keep conversations under 15 minutes. Maria, where it's hard for you and I to do that. <laughs> where does this come from? Yeah, um, so so we have two things that, that people bandy about all the time, and it's the six feet distance rule, right, and 15 minutes. Um, the six feet actually has a lot more science behind it, but unfortunately no longer applies because six feet comes from large droplet transmission. So how far those large droplets that you can actually see um, can travel. And that's something that we've actually known for a long time, um, since the 19th century, actually, where there was a German named Karl Fluge, who I think that's how you pronounce it, right? If he's German? <laughs> Karl, yeah, Karl, it's Karl, yeah. Karl, Karl, a German <laughs> named Karl, um, who was the first one who actually looked at droplets that came out of your nose and your mouth. And he did some measurements and thought that 
kind of the maximum distance they could travel was about two meters. Um, and that's been shown multiple times since then. So that's where the six feet comes from. Unfortunately, we've since learned that the primary way that the virus is transmitted isn't through those large droplets, it's through aerosol transmissions, which travel much, much further, over 10 meters, which is over 30 feet. So that basically renders the six feet not useless, but uh, not a not a great rule of thumb. But that hasn't stopped people from keeping to recommend the six feet rule, which was actually based on the two meter rule, which is not exactly six feet, but also not exactly the size of the droplets involved. So they got the distance and the droplet size both wrong. But I guess let's proceed and let's defer to that <laughs> nevertheless. Yeah. So we're actually talking about aerosol transmission, which was discovered much, much later. So actually, the story of the aerosol transmission discovery was written up in 1979. So that's how long we've known like these completely microscopic droplets can transmit virus. And what happened there was a plane that had 54 people aboard it um, was stuck on the tarmac for three hours because the engine had failed. And within 72 hours, 72% um, of the passengers got a very severe flu. And one person had been sick on the plane. Um, and so that's where people realized, oh, wow, you know, you can be sitting far away. And in an enclosed space, people get sick, even if only one person is sick. So that's where we get the aerosol transmission. The 15 minutes comes from preliminary data from Wuhan at the start of the coronavirus outbreak, where basically they averaged, they looked at data in the first few months of COVID and averaged the amount of time and how long it took people to get infected and came up with this 15 minute guideline number. So they saw that, you know, people who had very quick contacts, very casual, that they didn't normally transmit the virus. But when people had what they said, quote unquote, meaningful amounts of contact. So if you live together, if you eat together, if you travel together, there was much greater chance of transmission. And so when contact tracers in China were trying to figure out, okay, how do we deal with this? Our numbers are through the roof. How do we figure out all these contact networks? The 15-minute guideline was developed there to help them try to figure out, okay, which types of interactions should we be focused on? But, uh -huh. and I think this, this is crucial, it was always an average, it was always a rough guideline. It was never meant to be gospel. And yeah. since then, we've actually, the science um, has been pretty intense in the last few months with a lot of really good scientists trying to analyze this and figure out what's going on. And I think the reason we still have the 15 minutes is not because of the properties, the magical properties of the coronavirus, but because of the magical properties of the human brain, which is that it's much easier to tell someone six feet, 15 minutes than it is, well, there's a lot of uncertainty and you probably shouldn't do this. And the likelihood of this is pretty high and you can get infected within 30 seconds or you cannot get infected within half an hour because there are all these variables in play um, and people just completely shut off. So I think it comes right. down to communicating as opposed to being accurate in this particular case. So if I can, I want to ask you, do you know the original Wuhan studies? Was that mm -hmm. 15 minutes indoors and outdoors? And also, you said it was a median time of, was it yeah. a median time of 15 minutes? Or was the median time for transmission somewhere very low? And they determined that 
anything more than 15 minutes was, you know, extremely dangerous. The, the original studies that it proved not to be that dispositive. I'm really wanting to dig in on what even they said. Yeah. So um, unfortunately, the original original was published in Chinese. However, I will uh, tell you some of the big picture things. So they found when they looked at over 7,000 early cases, um, and this was in the Hubei province, they found that all cluster cases, that most of them basically... And by most, I mean like overwhelming majority occurred indoors and that they only found outdoor airborne transmission in one single cluster case. But but we have to also realize that in China, everyone was wearing masks, even at the beginning of this outbreak. Right. Because that's actually just much more widespread um, because of air quality, just because of cultural norms. The virus started from a very different starting point. Um, and they also found that about 80% of clusters. Now we're talking about clusters, um, not not just transmission to one person, but when we see significant clusters, about 80% occurred inside apartment homes, and about 34% were on public transportation, and restaurants were also not very good. Um, there's a very, very famous now study that looked at restaurant transmission specifically and found that one person who was sick at one table ended up infecting basically someone at every single table within the flow of the vent that was right next to his table. Yeah, I, I just one day want to travel to China and go into that restaurant. That, that would be, <laughs> it's like, this is it. But um, so we've gotten actually a lot more nuanced since those very early analyses. And there's a team from MIT that's actually just released um, a preprint. And you and I did a, did a preprint, is that bullshit, near the beginning of this, that looked at what they call cumulative exposure time. So basically trying to answer this exact question. How do you figure out like what what's going to happen with something that they call cumulative exposure time, which involves all sorts of variables, um, including you know how many people are sick, how far away are you, how, what's the amount of time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they went much deeper into what we now know about mm -hmm. how COVID spreads. And they looked at, so first of all, outdoor transmission much less likely than indoor transmission. I think we were all clear on that. But yeah. the 15-minute guideline, they were trying to figure out if you're inside, does that 15-minute guideline actually make sense? And it's very cool. If you look up this paper, they actually, on the MIT website, they have an interactive model where you can input all of these things for yourself to try to figure out how big your risk is in different situations. Um, so it's something that's fun to play with. Well, fun or terrifying. I found it terrifying, mm -hmm. but for some people, it might be fun. Um, compelling, so, let's say, yeah. <laughs> yes, compelling. And so you look at things like, okay, what's the rate of ventilation and air filtration? How big is the room? What's your breathing rate? So it, your transmission is going to vary greatly if you're talking quietly, if you're whispering, if you're yelling, if you're singing. I mean, we know that one of the first super spreader events in the U.S. was a choir practice. So the breathing rate and the respiratory activity, what exactly is going on, whether people are using face masks, if they are using face masks, what kind of face masks, and how infectious are the aerosols. So if you think about all of those variables, that's why your head starts kind of hurting and you realize that's where they came up with 15 minutes. By they, I mean CDC. Yeah. 
And a headache could be a sign of coronavirus. Yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Because it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. So one of the things you find is that if you're in a restaurant indoors, so if people are actually not wearing masks and there's one person who's sick in the restaurant and you don't have just total state-of-the-art ventilation, people are going to get sick and it's going to take much – basically, the 15-minute rule applies here very quickly and you realize that it's just not safe right now. Unfortunately, I, I want to go into a restaurant and dine indoors, but – the second that you take off masks inside, 15 minutes drops. It becomes lower than 15 minutes, especially yeah. if you have one infectious individual, especially if you have someone laughing. Um, and, you know, when people are drinking or eating or out with friends, they're laughing. They're, they're having a good time. They're not all whispering. Um, and so all of a sudden it becomes much lower. If you're sitting at a table with people and you're all six feet apart and no one takes off the mask even for a second and you're inside, still you're going to end up getting sick if not everyone is wearing a surgical mask. So hmm. cotton masks end up giving you only, I think, an additional, I don't remember the exact number, but it was like something like two extra minutes um, of, of time before you get sick um, because it's not very effective. But there are different types of cotton masks, right? <laughs> How many layers do you have? All of these things are really complicated. And it turns out that basically what I would say is 15 minutes is not a great rule of thumb if any one person is not wearing a mask or has the mask down, not on their nose and mouth, or is wearing a crappy mask or is wearing a man bandana, which does not count as a mask. Um, and I mean, it's better than nothing, but there's a, a lot of exposure to the outside with a bandana. Yeah. Um, anyway, th when you read this preprint, um, it's very sobering. And you realize that both the six feet rule and the 15 minute rule are not particularly helpful when it comes to making decisions on an individual level. There's a tool that you could slide around and you could see yes. how it affects you. Okay, let's put that Absolutely. on our- Absolutely, and we should and we should link to it. Yeah, we'll link to that, but I want to know, since I'm just talking to you about this tool, yeah. once you go outside and are distanced, does, yep. the, does the time have really any effect? No, no. The time, the time is not that important. If you're both wearing masks and you're distanced outside, then you can probably talk for quite a long time and everything is fine. But the weather does matter. So uh, outside, all of a sudden, you do still have factors that will change the rate of transmission. And those are factors such as how humid is it? What's the rate of air pollution? So how much particulate matter is there in mm. the air? So there are a few studies that have looked at the fact that some of the earliest places with really heavy outbreaks had pretty polluted air. So China wasn't just polluted, but it was you had the winter haze at the time that COVID struck. In northern Italy, there was a huge amount of particulate matter in the air. It was not the cleanest part of Italy. Um, New York City, not the cleanest part of the country. So it's actually, it's very interesting when you look at it that the quality of the air and what's going on outdoors actually also affects the rates of transmission, how long the virus stays in the air and how quickly it can spread. Interesting. So I guess the real question I was anchored on was this 15-minute rule. Do they mean that if you are to have one conversation, keep it under 15 minutes? I guess that's what they mean. Or are they recommending something like 
Let's say there are four people there. Once you talk to one for 15 minutes, then move on to the next one. (laughs) Say, oh, sorry, we're at 1430. Because to me, it seems like you're more likely to get infected as opposed to talking to one person at length to say, sorry, we have a 15 minute max. Got to move on to the next person. That seems more dangerous. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. If you're, say, in a restaurant or in any sort of enclosed space with multiple people, all of those people are part of your 15-minute exposure, even if they are not within six feet of you. The six-feet guideline has to go completely out the window when we're talking about aerosol transmission and when we're talking about indoors. Because if you have particles that are traveling over 30 feet and indoors are staying in the air, if it's not perfect, perfect ventilation, then all of a sudden, every single person there is someone you're exposed to. I was looking at some guidelines where schools move children around so that you move every 14 minutes so that you're not next (laughs) to any classmate or within six feet of any classmate for more than 50 minutes. And that's, I mean, that's not, we need a new word. That's not bullshit. Like that's just asinine. I I don't (laughs) understand. But if every single person indoors is wearing a mask and there's very good ventilation, then you can actually stay for much longer than 15 minutes and the 15 minute goes out the window the other way, right? If you're, if you're in a group with good ventilation, every single person is wearing a mask for the entire time, does not take it off, then all of a sudden you're probably safe speaking for multiple hours. Amazing. So this is going to be the is that bullshit question that has applicability, the most specific applicability to my own life. Let us say that you are having, I don't know, a wedding reception with a dozen people on a mountaintop. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. We, or the people I'm speaking of, will be masked, will be outside and at a distance. Is it bullshit to, upon those set of rules, which are not bullshit, is it bullshit to insist on or impose a rule that conversations occur for less than 15 minutes. Would that be bullshit? That would be total bullshit. <laughs> That's excellent. It's excellent news because I will be on that mountainside. <laughs> I, I, Mike, I shall I be engaged in those conversations. I love how carefully you phrase that question. <laughs> but is it bullshit if you're talking inside with a mask to keep conversations on the shorter side? No, it's not bullshit, especially if you're in a place where the ventilation isn't great, which, to be frank, is most places, because most ventilation systems were not designed with a pandemic in mind. Then I would say even if you're all wearing a mask, you should probably move on and try to just not do that, because all of these studies also assume properly fitting masks. And like, who are we kidding? When we're, we're not doctors, we're not emergency personnel, no one's fitted our masks for us, air does get through. It's not perfect. And so it should not suddenly make you feel invincible, even if you do have an N95, because unless your N95 mask has been properly fitted, um, mm-hmm. it still doesn't give you the protection that you think it's giving you. So indoors, especially with poor ventilation, all bets are off. But indoors with good ventilation, if everyone's wearing a medical grade mask, um, you'll be fine. Well, I want you to know that at this upcoming ceremony, we decided not to go with the chocolate fountain and we use those savings for a mask fitting station. That's wonderful. (laughs) Well done, you. (laughs) (laughs) Maria Konnikova is the author of The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. She is our guest, our frequent, our too infrequent guest as we play Is That Bullshit? Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. (laughs) 
And now the spiel. So you heard my talking with Maria, and I hope you've heard some previous talks we've had with uh, Roxanne Comzi and Henry Grabar and Thomas Pueo, and you heard me push back and I'm going to say stress test some of the public health advice, some of the notions associated with shutdowns and safety. And I do it because I apply certain rules and certain skepticism to every news item. I'm generally curious, inquisitive. Maybe that's why you listen. Also, I do think it strengthens the advice if it's known to be held to scrutiny, puts officials on notice that such scrutiny awaits. They should do everything to get it right and not exaggerate. But there is a huge difference to asking questions, eager to hear an earnest answer, questions like, why do they say that? How did you arrive at those conclusions? There's a huge difference between doing that with sincerity and another set of similar sounding questions that are asked by those in the anti-mask, COVID suspicious community. Alex Berenson and some others among him diminish the side of the argument, if you want to call it that. I call it the side of public health, diminishes most of the measures that we've taken against the coronavirus as being a part of, quote, team apocalypse. Now, Berenson is the former New York Times journalist who has created a niche of downplaying or flat out denying many of the risks of COVID. At first, I did pay some attention to what he was saying because he has qualifications and he knows how to examine evidence and to shed insight. And also because I'm naturally hesitant to commit fully to only one information silo. Things were pretty early, pretty up in the air. And I sought out people who might have contrarian takes, but also, you know, I'd be evaluating them for future usefulness. But Berenson, and not just Berenson, he stands for other denialists and downplayers like Dr. Drew and especially Fox's Mark Siegel. They have proved to be less than useful. And I'm not defining useful as they don't tell me what I want to hear or they always tell me things will be safe or they always tell me things will be dire. I'm also not defining useful as they superciliously say science. It's because of science, because that argument is really frustrating and it's not useful at all. Some members of Team Downplay have in fact made valid isolated points here and there, but almost all of their points have ultimately been echoed by more knowledgeable experts who have a better track record of getting things right and don't thrill so much in occasionally proving a public health expert wrong. Among the good experts are Zenyep Tufeki, Andy Slavitt, Scott Gottlieb, Carl Bergstrom, that guy is great. And they're better not because they take COVID more seriously, though they do. They're better not because their views align with mine, though they do, because I listen to them and they've influenced me over time. They're better because their orientation understands and acknowledges how knowledge is acquired. This is the most important point I want to make. It's not that Alex Berenson is dangerous or should be mocked, and he can be dangerous, he really can, or that Zenyep's insightful. I find her to be very insightful, and my point is in science, science. I'm going to browbeat you with the word science. My argument is an acknowledgement of the iterative nature of science. If your stance is that COVID is not that bad, there are so many rich opportunities for you to score a point at a bad message 
or a tweaked message or a change in emphasis or the times that public health officials have legitimately gotten things wrong. Because you could point to that as proof of your correct stance. You have a much, much easier job in acknowledging that we are undergoing an iterative process that will have moments, perhaps long stretches, where we are laboring under misconceptions or we are following guidelines that prove too strict, maybe even counterproductive. It's true of any unknown, by the way. If I was working on the Manhattan Project and you were on team atomic weapons are an impossibility, you'd have much better arguments along the way, right? Every misstep would be a feather in your cap. Day four, no split in the atom. Day 113, no split in the atom. Oh, that Oppenheimer is just lying to save his job. Now, one day it would appear that your side lost, right? That day would be marked by a mushroom cloud over New Mexico. But what we're engaging here is actually a project not like the Manhattan Project or, say, the Moonshot, which will culminate in one very discernible invention. If you're arguing, I guess we should say arguing, I, I would just say acknowledging that the coronavirus is bad and we need to take measures to protect ourselves, there's no point where that all gets settled, does it? Especially if one side denies that 276,000 bodies are something that's much out of the ordinary. We, the public health side and the team downplay, they're actually playing two different games here. Team, this is serious, right? Public health, their goal is to save the world from the coronavirus. Team downplay's goal is to point out everything that the other side gets wrong or just seems to get wrong before all the data is in, which is another huge frustration. Let's take Sweden. The country of Sweden did seem to offer a decent, though imperfect test case for an alternative approach. And Team Downplay loved Sweden. Sweden is a success, they argued. Let's do it like Sweden, even though. Just if you were looking fairly, you'd see they had higher per capita death rates than all their Nordic neighbors. No, 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 Team Downplay said, look at excess deaths. Okay, but that doesn't seem to be going so well for Sweden either. Okay, but take out the old people who die. Okay, but don't we want the old people not to die? And aren't old people dying affecting our statistics? And well, well, wait until herd immunity kicks in. Well, it's not going to kick in. Here's the latest from Sweden. Sweden has so far resisted a national lockdown, but it's rethinking its strategy after recording a surge of second wave infections. Tonight, its citizens are being told to stay home. Strict measures also going into effect. As Crystal Gaban Singh reports, Sweden has been slammed for taking a lax attitude towards COVID-19, but is now being hit with more deaths than its neighbours. But the down players who touted the insights of Anders Tegnell, the Swedish epidemiologist who preached herm immunity, now they're silent and Tegnell is sidelined. I, I guess the down players, as I search their accounts and hear their arguments, they're still engaged in some light statistical quibbling, but mostly they're silent. Berenson hasn't posted on Sweden in days. This is another benefit to being on the side where your goal is to simply point out your opponent's mistakes. You can ignore your own. Because you're engaged in a PR campaign, a rhetorical campaign, and the other side is engaged in a public health campaign. It's a lot easier to be on the side where you're arguing every mistake is a falsehood and every misconception is a lie. And what happens is you wind up convincing not just diehards who believed in you already and not just extremely dumb, impressionable people, people, but you wind up convincing some of the self-styled open-minded, maybe even people who want to seek out information. And sometimes those people could have huge audiences, but not perhaps huge reserves of knowledge.
one of the more unfortunate things that happened was Fauci told people not to wear masks and the masks aren't going to help you. And the reason why he did that is because he didn't want people buying masks mm -hmm. and them not being available for first responders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the problem with that is now you know that they're willing to lie if they think it's within everybody's best interest, if they tell you something that's not true. That is actually not a fair way to look at the change in messaging around mask recommendations. Now, I happen to think that without very prominent members of Team Downplay, that the argument, uh, they're lying to us, wouldn't be so attractive. But maybe it would be, because in the U.S. there is a lot of suspicion, and there are fewer gatekeepers than there have ever been before. I think Joe Rogan, who you heard there, has a value, just not on telling you and adjudicating issues of public health. So what I wanted to do here, and I've gone on a little too long, I think, is I just wanted to put forward where I am and where I think we should all be in evaluating claims about COVID. Recognize that it's easier to score points than save lives. Recognize that broad claims of science, 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 it's science, it's extremely off-putting. Whereas reasons and explanations and acknowledgments that maybe get things wrong, it may not seem like a silver, silver bullet or a hammer across the head rhetorically, but it's also not so galvanizing an argument to the other side. Recognize that overbroad condemnation not backed by science hurts right? Shaming Thanksgiving travelers across the board. It's not that productive. And also realize that the hypocrisy from leaders of Team Take This Seriously is unbelievably undermining. A few dinners at the French Laundry from the governor of California or the mayor of San Francisco or Thanksgiving travel from the mayors of San Jose or Denver are just not mere examples of giving into temptation. They're, they're undoing months of communication. Lastly, realize how easy it is to win when you define your job as a teardown project rather than a preservation project. The wrecking ball takes just one clumsy swing to destroy what humans working together may have taken eons to build up. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly produces the gist. She believes in a little bit of a midpoint of the 15-minute rule and including the five-second rule, basically, you shouldn't debate the wisdom of eating a grilled cheese sandwich on the floor for four seconds. Don't debate that for more than 15 minutes. Daniel Schrader, just producer, believes in another version of that rule, which is eat the grilled cheese sandwich that's been on the floor for five seconds, but wait 15 minutes to see if your gastrointestinal distress levels validate your decision. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She notes that Cameo offers messages from Rob Bass. Rob Bass? Odd that he'd be so popular. I mean, he's not internationally known, and yet he charges $150. You want a quinceanera message from Rob Bass, and you got a $100 bill? Well, it takes two. The gist. In addition to Rob Bass... You can get messages from the following singers on Cameo, Dougie Fresh, Mark McGrath, Ice Cube, but not Larry Ernest Blackman. Why? Who is Larry Ernest Blackman? Well, he is the lead singer of Cameo. Word up with that. Oompoo de and thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll go with the last one.